It has been our custom over the years here at Redeemer to invite a special guest preacher on Reformation Sunday. We've had many over the years. It's been a blessing to host these brothers who have come. This morning we have as our guest preacher Dr. Carl Truman. Dr. Truman is an historian, a theologian, and a professor at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He is also an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Dr. Truman is a prolific author, and his latest book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, largely a scholarly work, has become a bestseller, receiving a wide spectrum of endorsements. He's also a regular contributor to the journal First Things Online, and his blogs and podcasts have a wide following. He has a rare combination of areas of expertise and giftedness that have allowed him to become really one of the foremost cultural analysts and Christian voices of our day. So we're very happy to have him here again with us at Redeemer this weekend, especially for today, Reformation Sunday. Carl is married to Katrina, who has traveled here with him, and together they have two adult children. Dr. Truman, welcome back to Redeemer, and I invite you now to come and preach God's Word. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you all uh, this morning to share God's Word. I wonder if you turn in your Bibles to the first uh, chapter of the book of Hebrews. I want to read just the first four verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Hear the Word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. O Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, you are the one who dwells in unapproachable light. You are infinite, you are eternal, you are unchanging. And we are finite. Not only are we finite, Lord, but our minds are easily distracted and indeed even darkened with our rebellion. Lord, this morning we pray that as your word is proclaimed, your Holy Spirit would take that word and apply it to our hearts, that we might leave this place, not merely having heard about your Son, but having had his reality pressed and sealed once again upon our hearts and minds. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. The silence of God, the question of whether God speaks, is a perennial human preoccupation, and perhaps never more so than now. If you're a non-Christian this morning, you might be asking the question as to whether God speaks at all. But even if you're a Christian, it is likely that you've had moments, perhaps prolonged periods of time in your life, when you prayed for things, perhaps very important and very serious things, the, the relief of the suffering or the illness being experienced by a loved one. And nothing seems to have happened. The Lord seems to have been silent and absent. The silence of God presses in on us, particularly at a time 
where the world seems so chaotic. And often the kind of answers we'll give to friends who are wondering why their prayers have not been answered in the way they hoped can seem very trite. God did answer your prayer, just not in the way you expect it. May be true, but it can often be little more than a, a trite dodge when we're in discussion with friends who are going through dark and agonizing times. We're struck by the saying of the Christian philosopher of the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, who, gazing up at the sky, spoke about the eternal silence of the infinite spheres that made him feel alone. And often, I think, even as Christians, we can feel that. We feel that God does not speak in the way that we would wish him to speak to us. And that's why this passage in Hebrews is so important, because I think what this passage does is it allows us to, to rethink our understanding of God's speech in a way that has profound practical consequences, or should have profound practical consequences for us. And there are just three things that I want to draw your attention to in this passage. It's an extraordinarily rich passage, but I want to focus on three things in particular this morning. I want to focus on the presence of God in Christ. I want to focus on the power of the Son in creation. And I want us to reflect upon the placement of the Son in the present. The presence of God in Christ the power of the Son in creation, and the placement of the Son in the present. These three things, I think, form part of a cumulative argument that Paul is going to expound in great detail in subsequent chapters, but it's contained in kind of microcosm or summary in these first four verses. So the first thing then, the presence of God in, and indeed the presence of God through Christ. One of the first things we learn about God in the Bible, of course, is uh, not only does he exist, but he's also a speaking God. If you read the accounts of creation, beginning of the book of Genesis, those accounts are characterized by God's speech. There was nothing, God spoke, and then there was something. God is a speaking God. And that speaking of God, that speech of God, continues throughout the Old Testament. When Moses goes before Pharaoh, he speaks for God. When Moses stands before the people, when Moses rules the people, he rules, he speaks on behalf of the Lord. When you look at the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, the phrase, the word of God came to, is used repeatedly to characterize the prophetic task. The idea is that God speaks through his servants. Now, one of the things that this passage in Hebrews makes clear is this. This speech of God is not just a sort of flat, continual speech. It's not, not that God speaks, and then he speaks again, and then he speaks again, and then he speaks again. What the writer to the Hebrews is pointing to here is that God's speech in the Old Testament builds towards something. It builds towards God's speech in the Lord Jesus Christ. History, if you like, is not flat with reference to God's speech. History is building towards something, and that something is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So that's one of the things to learn from this passage. This passage is pointing us to, we might say, the shape of history in terms of the speech of God. But the passage also requires us to remember something about speech that's very important, that often we can forget. We, we know it intuitively, but often we forget it. And that's that speech is about more than information. As human beings, we don't speak to each other merely to communicate information. Speech is used for a lot of things. It's used as a way of articulating, constituting friendships and relationships. Speech, we might say, is also a way of being present. We've all had those situations, perhaps with a loved one or a friend, where they can be in the same room and we can see them. We could even reach out and touch them if we so chose, but they're not speaking to us for some reason. The relationship has broken down. And one might in those situations say, you know, physically, the person is present with me, but actually they're absent. They don't speak. So they might as well not be here. It's as if they were absent. God's speech throughout the Bible, I think, is like that. God's speech is not just about information. God's speech is about his presence and the nature of his presence, whether in judgment or in grace, with his people. Book of Amos, the prophecy of Amos, makes this very clear. Amos, of course, is pronouncing judgment against the people of Israel. And the judgment culminates in chapter 8, verse 11 and following, where Amos, or the Lord, through Amos, declares the following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. What the Lord is saying there is that I'm coming in judgment against you. And you will know the judgment by my silence. And I don't care if you run from coast to coast. I don't, if you, I don't care if you run through all four points of the compass. I don't care how much you run hither and yon. You will not find me speaking to you. God, of course, is always present in the sense of he upholds all things. But what the Lord is saying here is in the way that it really counts, I'm going to be absent from you. I will not be speaking to you. I will not be present to you and for you. That, I think, provides helpful background to understanding why God speaking by Christ is consistent with, but vastly superior to the prophets. Because Christ, in his very person, is God present with us present with his people. Notice the language of verse 3. Talk about the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. These are statements about Jesus Christ's divinity. Basically, he's being identified with God at this point. We're told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but at this point in time, all I want you to observe is that's what God does. 
Functionally, Jesus is doing the stuff that God does. Therefore, Jesus is God. Think about it. The prophet spoke on behalf of God. His presence with his people was mediated through them. You can have an ambassador. I don't know who the U.S. ambassador of the court of St. James is at the moment, but that's the, the, the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom. Uh, if the U.S. ambassador goes to speak to the queen, he speaks, she speaks with the authority of the president. The president is sort of there in a mediated way. The ambassador, of course, has no direct authority. Their only authority comes from the fact that they've been appointed by the president. But if the president visits the United Kingdom and has an audience with the queen, the president himself, the authoritative figure himself, is present. That's the difference between the prophets and the Lord Jesus. With the prophets, God was present when the word of the Lord comes to them and they speak it. In Jesus, God is present. We see that with the difference in the raising of the dead, the raising of the dead that say Elijah or Elisha engaged in, the raising of the Shunammites' uh, uh, son, when uh, Elisha calls upon the name of the Lord to raise the Shunammite son from the dead. When Jesus goes to the house of Jairus and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, he simply says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Direct authority, direct and immediate presence. So the first thing to note in this passage then is God's presence is intimately bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God himself in Christ who has come to speak to his people. The presence of God when Christ arrives is immediate and we might say intense compared to that of the prophets. Secondly, the power of the Son in creation. Two things are of interest in this passage relative to the Son and creation. First of all, in verse 2, we're told that uh, God created the world through the Son. And then in verse 3, we're told that the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, the word that used for world in verse 2, through whom also he created the world, has both, to put it in a slightly pretentious way, has both spatial and temporal reference. What do you mean by that? Space and time. God created both space and time through the Son. And verse 3 then reinforces that. We're told in verse 3 what? We're told that the Son is the one who keeps everything, space and time, and everything contained within space and time, in being. A couple of observations follow from this. First of all, when we think of uh, a God in those terms... It stops us thinking of him as somehow distant. There can be a tendency sometimes for us to think about God creating the world a little bit like, you know, knocking over the first domino in a chain. And once the first domino's fallen, the dominoes just keep falling. And God is only really relevant at that first explosive moment. This passage makes it very clear that's not the case. 
God is continually involved in upholding everything in being. And that undergirds our notion of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty speaks, it's a doctrine that speaks of the absolute dependence of everything upon him. But notice, as we're thinking about how this passage teaches God's sovereignty, this passage stops us from thinking about God's sovereignty as a sort of blind, abstract force. Sovereignty here is grounded in the sun. The sun upholds things. Well, who is the sun? What is the function of the sun? Well, one of the most important functions of the sun is he reveals the character of God to us. He is the exact imprint of God the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And here we're being told that providence, creation and providence, they're the work of the Son. Well, that should immediately draw us away from any notion of God's sovereignty as a kind of cold, impersonal force. No. Creation and providence are upheld by the Son and are therefore governed in accordance with the character of God the Father that the Son reveals to us. As the Son reveals God as good and wise, we can know that God's sovereignty is good and wise. Not a huge fan of the Star Wars movies. One of my elders made me watch one of the movies once, thought it was terrible. But the force. God is not the force. God is not this sort of abstract power. God has character revealed in the Son. And that shapes and informs how we should understand providence. Because the Son, who has that divine character, upholds all things by the word of his power. And think of upholding. Upholding carries clear connotations of more than just raw power. I love that image in the Old Testament of where uh, Moses is describing how well, the Lord is describing through Moses how he led the people of Israel in the wilderness and how he carried the people of Israel like a father carries his son. Fathers don't just carry sons in a kind of abstract way. They carry them in a loving way with intention and purpose. That's the upholding of time and space. That's providence. It's upheld. It has, we might say, a shape and a purpose given to it by the character of God himself. That should have some immediate practical results for us as Christians. First of all, it should affect our adoration of the Son. Often we rightly and appropriately worship God the Son for the work he did for us in his incarnate life and on the cross, and that's right and appropriate. But we should also worship God the Son for his upholding of all things for the fact that he is God. We should adore him, not simply, if you like, for the things he's done for us, but for the things he does and the person that he is. Secondly, it should boost our confidence amidst the apparent change and uncertainty in our world. My lecture last night was an attempt to try to explain some of the chaos that we're now witnessing in our world and suggest that there is a, uh, an evil underlying logic behind it 
But even as we see this chaos around us, even as the world seems to be fracturing and fragmenting, as all that is solid seems to be melting into air, we can still be confident because amidst the apparent change and uncertainty of our world, all things, space and time, are upheld by Christ, by the word of his power. God is still on his throne. He didn't just set things rolling in motion years and years and years ago and leave them to roll on. God upholds everything here and now in accordance with his character and in accordance with his grand purpose. And that should provide a foundation for prayer. Prayer is not so much a cry for God to speak, though it can be that, and we see that in the Psalms, and it is legitimate to call out and ask God to speak. But more often, I think it should be a response to the fact that God has already spoken in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is reinforced and undergirded by the third point, which in some ways the, the third point is the most fascinating, perhaps, point in the first four verses, and that's the placement of the Son in the present. Verses three and four tell us three important things about Christ beyond his work in creation and providence. We're told he has made purification for sins, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he has been exalted above the angels. Purification for sins. The priestly work of Christ will be the dominant theme of the book of Hebrews. The writer of the Hebrews, his imagination is gripped by the priestly work of Christ. Points us back, and the writer will point us back, of course, to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, to, to the Levitical priesthood, to the Day of Atonement. Said in the first sermon, if you use one of those read through the Bible in a year or two year schemes, you know, when you hit the book of Leviticus, you know, a little piece of me always dies at that point. It's going to be a long haul. Yeah. But there is the middle of the book of Leviticus where you have the Day of Atonement. And amidst all of the strange priestly rituals, the Day of Atonement grabs the imagination. The slaying of the one goat and the sending off of the other into the wilderness the great purification of the people's sins, which will find its culmination, its climax, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ, which will be the dominant theme of the book of Hebrews. But Christ's work, of course, here is being presented as superior to the priests, as his speech, we might say, is as superior to the prophets. Christ's work is being prevent, presented here as qualitatively superior to that of the Old Testament priests. As the prophet spoke God's word immediately, and Christ is God's word immediately, so the Old Testament priests offered sacrifice to God. But in Christ, God is himself both the priest and the offering. How do we know? Well, that comes from the second piece of information we're given. Christ is described as seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think one of the most neglected doctrines uh, in, in the church is the doctrine of the ascension. We tend to think of Christ dead and Christ risen. We have to think of him as ascended as well. And John 
Chapter 16, Jesus makes precisely that point when his disciples are disturbed because he says he's going away. He makes the point, well, you're sad because uh, I say I'm going away. But if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. We might rephrase that and say, if I don't go away, there'll be no church. We're only here this morning because Christ not only died and was resurrected, but he also ascended as well. And the ascension, the ascension of Christ is the basic assumption of the writer to the Hebrews. We might say that the book of Hebrews is a long reflection on what the ascended Christ is now doing. And notice two things about this description of the ascended Christ here. First of all, we're told he's seated. And that is a radical and dramatic statement. Paul will bring that out for us in Hebrews chapter 10 when he says this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Earthly priests don't sit down. Not while they're performing their priestly tasks anyway. They don't sit down because their work is never done. Their work is never done. Christ sitting indicates that his sacrifice is completed and entirely sufficient to accomplish its end. It needs no constant repetition. It needs no supplement. And we know that because he's seated. That's the significance of the session, the heavenly session, we might say, of Christ. Secondly, notice his location. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty on high is just a fancy and poetic way of saying God. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That underlines the Son's surpassing glory at this point. There's a sense in which, you know, Hebrews is a long epistle. But the rest of Hebrews will say almost nothing that isn't contained in a nutshell in these first four verses. The one born in a stable, the one who lived the life of a poor man, the one who died a terrible death, that is the one who is now exalted to the highest place. Now is the one who is seated at God's right hand. We might say that the dynamic of humiliation and exaltation, the dynamic of coming down and going back up again, is completed. And notice this. The humanity stays united to the divine, only now glorified. It isn't that, well, Jesus has finished his priestly work, and so the humanity drops away at this point. Christ remains incarnate as he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Theologians have wrestled over the years with what will heaven be like, and it's a very speculative question. 
But there is a strand of Christian teaching that I find myself fairly compelling, that heaven will be gazing upon the resurrected humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing more and more about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mediated through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm struck with the uh, transfiguration. Jesus, just before the transfiguration, says, there are some standing here today who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And the next thing we have is what? Jesus takes a small group of his disciples up on the mountain and they see the divinity shining through the flesh. That, I think, is what heaven will be like. And it leads to the third piece of information. Jesus is exalted above the angels. Now, again, we have to read this passage a little carefully. There's a reference here to him inheriting the name. Does that mean that he sort of becomes the son at this point? He's earned the right to be the son. Well, no. And Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews makes that very clear in chapter 5, verse 8, when he states that the son was always the son. What the writer, I think, is doing here at the beginning is he's emphasizing that whereas the Son has always been the Son, now he is publicly exalted as such. Now, if you like, he occupies the public status that he has always possessed. We might say it's there for all who have eyes to see now. It parallels the comment about prophets. What were angels? Well, of course, angels were, they were kind of like the prophets in a way in, in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament with the visitation of the angel Gabriel to Mary. The angels were messengers of God. They brought word from God. They didn't act on their own part. They brought a word from God to the people. We don't need them anymore. Christ is vastly superior now to those messengers. God has spoken directly to us in Christ. We don't need the go-betweens anymore, for we have the greatest go-between of them all, the incarnate Son of God. It's also a clear reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. The writer's making the point, this one is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and of the great prophecies of the Old Testament. And we see here, when we reflect upon it, the drama of redemption, don't we? That the one who was God from all eternity became incarnate and lived a life of humility and humiliation to establish an affinity with us. And now he is exalted. And that, of course, will be very important in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4, where the writer makes the point that now we have a high priest who in some ways is just like us. He has flesh as we have flesh. He was tested in his flesh as we are tested in our flesh. He can sympathize for us as he intercedes for us. What are the practical implications as we close of this? Well, I think there are a few of them. I can't give you them all here, but I'll just give you four. First of all, should give us confidence in approaching God because this passage teaches us that the main part of Jesus' work, the sacrifice for sins, is completed and is now being offered as a perf by way of perfect intercession 
with God the Father. That should give us confidence in approaching the Holy of Holies with reverence and awe, but in and through the one who has gone before us and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Secondly, I think it should give us confidence in facing life. Yes, this passage teaches us that the work of purification is completed and that is good news. But surely it is also good news that the work of providence, the carrying forward of time and space that's embraced in that phrase, upholding all things, now has Christ, God and man, in both his divine and human nature as part of its guiding government. God governs providence. And God is united to human flesh in the person of Christ. Christ guides providence too. It should give us confidence in prayer that in and through Christ, his person and completed work, we can approach the Father about all things. Is it wonderful? One of the great glories of Trinitarian theology is this that the will of the Father and the Son are one and the same. One of the things that means is when the Son asks his Father for something in the intercession, his Father already wants to grant it to him. It's a powerful and perfect intercession. And that should give us full confidence that our prayers will be heard and will be answered in a perfect way by him who upholds the universe, time and space. And therefore, to return to where I started, it means this. It means that we should not mistake God's silence as we think we feel it and experience it for his silence in any absolute sense. The teaching of this passage is that God has spoken definitively, perfectly, and powerfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. The work is completed the news of that completion, the speech of that completion, is there for all to see and for all to hear. In Scripture, in the proclamation of the Word, in the administration of the sacraments, for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us thank God for his glorious gospel. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you. For you are the great three in one. We thank you that your son has revealed your character to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we know that he now sits with you and guides this world, upholding all things towards that great consummation at the end of time. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the times we doubt you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that your Holy Spirit, binding us to Christ, would give us great peace as we reflect upon the chaos of the world around us and would lift our eyes to the glories, the eternal, stable glories of the heavenly city. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.